From creator Edward Burns, check out the new series Public Morals on TNT. New York in the 60s had gambling, prostitution, after-hours bars, and cops to manage it. If you wanted to be in business, you had to pay the rent. Public Morals premieres Tuesday, August 25th at 10, 9 central on TNT. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm Gazella Mami, Vulture's TV editor, and I'm here with TV critic Matt Solar Seitz and TV columnist Margaret Lyons. Hey guys. Hi. Hey Gazelle. So we're going to be talking about two shows this episode, True Detective, which wrapped up its interesting second season on Sunday night, and USA's Mr. Robot. And both of these shows have been described a lot as cinematic, so we're going to just take a few minutes to discuss what that actually means. And if you have any questions for us about this or anything, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. We've been loving all the questions we've been getting, and we'd love to hear more from you guys. And also, if you're a Vulture insider, you can exclusively submit audio questions to the Vulture TV podcast. Visit vulture.com slash insiders to apply. So, Margaret, Matt, when you hear cinematic applied to TV, what does that make you think of? Are there shows you think of? It's such an ambiguous term. There are certain things that we might see as cues. Like, I find the music on Mr. Robot to be cinematic, for example. Right. That's the question is, what does that word mean? Mm Because it does get thrown around a lot, and I think probably the definition varies depending on who Mm -hmm. you ask. And, like, for me, it means that the show is telling the story with picture and with sound as much as it is with dialogue. And like even when the story is being carried by dialogue, the picture and sound aspects, and that includes music, are adding another layer to the experience. Like they're adding additional information or they're complicating it or they're subverting it in some way or they're adding a note of irony. They're just making it an altogether richer experience. Whereas a lot of television shows prior to about 30 years ago when we started to see more shows that were interestingly directed and had actual style, they tended to rely on the script to sell everything. And that's not to say that there weren't shows that were beautifully made, like uh, I think Twilight Zone and even a sitcom like The Andy Griffith Show had a particular aesthetic, but it wasn't a thing to do until uh, like halfway through the artistic life of the medium. And that's what cinematic means to me is it's not all words, it's not all performances. Mm -hmm. Not to knock words and performances, but there's more to storytelling, visual storytelling than that. I think it's important to draw this distinction though that it's not a reference to how movie-like something is. Because I think sometimes people use that as a point of praise for television, like that an episode was so good it was like a movie. And I feel like yeah. that is just such a weird false equivalent. Like, it's not that movies are inherently good in television. Like, there's a lot of really shitty movies. It's right. Like, oh, this is like a movie doesn't... I, I always bristle when I hear stuff like that. I so think, I think it, yeah. in this context, we're specifically talking about how many cylinders a given episode is firing on. Right. How sort of fully realized the vision of something is. And not just that the direction or the aesthetics are inventive per se, because I think you can have very sort of standardized aesthetics. Very as long classical, as, yeah. Yeah, as long as that's exactly how we're serving the story, right? That's a choice and not a default. We're not sliding into stuff. We're deciding. Yes. So that said, as you rightly pointed out, people often use it to describe a film-like quality. And we often write about it as like, oh, you know, the latest season of True Detective, we wrote about how it's Lynchian in a lot of ways, or it's like a film noir. Same with Mr. Robot. There are a lot of film touchstones like American Psycho, Fight Club. Is this just because 
there's more there to mine in terms of, you know, well, there's the more history, of history of film. Basically. There's more of a history to draw on, but there's increasing cross-pollination mm-hmm. between the two media. And I was thinking about how Fight Club, you know, is obviously a huge influence on Mr. Robot, just visually, just the, the look of it, the colors, the way, mm-hmm. the, the composition, the, narration, as well. the narration, the use of music, but also that comes out of Stanley Kubrick. Like David Fincher wouldn't exist if it weren't for Stanley Kubrick. And Kubrick wouldn't exist if it weren't for Orson Welles. And there's this whole lineage of filmmakers you can trace back. And it's a little harder to do with television because television is just a newer medium. As somebody who writes about TV and film at the same time, and I've been doing it for a long time, I had a lot of arguments 10, 20 years ago with film critics about whether or not television could ever be cinematic. And I I contended that it could be and often wasn't. And often mm-hmm. it was economic reasons why it wasn't, but but I think it absolutely can be. There and are I, also plenty of movies that aren't cinematic, right? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> you know, this right. is not... Yeah. I mean, I think one distinction, too, that's important when we think about how television has moved forward is how much of television was available for study Yes. versus how much of film was available for study. So as a kid, I grew up watching classic movies. There was tremendous access to the back catalog and the library of film. You know, films used to be re-released in theaters. You had a lot of chances. And for television, that was very much not the case. And it's only been maybe in the last, like, 20 years that the idea that everything would be on VHS even was was increasingly true. So the ability to sit with something that you care about and, and to, to really, like, absorb a masterpiece and watch it over and over again and be in a classroom with a professor, you know, having that on the screen and pausing it to discuss, that wasn't always part of the available library for television. No, and I, I'm researching a book with Alan Sepinwall about great TV dramas and comedies, and... Once you get before about 1980, it becomes really it's hard tough. to see some of these yeah. shows. It really becomes hard. Like, you've got to go deep down the rabbit hole mm-hmm. on the Internet and find somebody who's ripped episodes of, of you know, Police Story, not Police Squad, sure. or, or something like that, or uh, Route 66. There was a DVD box set a few years ago. You know, you got to go to DVDs. Sometimes you got to go to VHS. Sometimes you're just out of luck. So you guys are saying it's more, we just haven't explored TV quite as in-depth as we have film because of access. Access is part of it. There's like a lot of factors to all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I certainly think the increase in size of the ordinary television screen has increased the demand for aesthetically driven television storytelling. Absolutely. You know, if you're watching TV on a little, I don't know, something the size of a shoebox, basically, the importance of cinematography is or the premise of cinematography is going to be different. We're going to ask for different things from what we're, you know, we're going to need a lot more close-ups. We're going to have a lot fewer sweeping, establishing shots. You know, I don't think you can have like a Jane Campion story being told on a little teeny screen, right? It just doesn't, Mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense. When you're watching something on a much bigger screen that many of us have in our homes now, you're much more attuned to what the whole picture looks like and, and how big that canvas can be. That's very true. And yeah, the thing you say about the wide shots, that's one of the first things that I noticed about some of the better dramas that were being made in the nineties was that they weren't afraid to to have a long Mm -hmm. shot and to hold on a long shot, like not just to establish where people were in a room or like in a field or something. And then usually it's like you see two people People walk into a coffee shop, you see, them, you see them from head to toe, and then suddenly it's all close-ups from then on out. And uh, they don't feel the need to do that as much. And it's weird, though, because now we're sort of swinging back the other way because so many people watch TV on their phones. Yeah. Although so. that still winds up being a little bit different, I think, in terms yeah. of resolution and, and image richness versus mm-hmm. those cathode ray tube TV I had in my room as a kid, you know, yes. mostly for Sega Genesis. 456 <laughs> but, lines or whatever it was. Yeah, you know, it was okay for Magnum PI reruns, but I don't know <laughs> that it would be that great for 
a madman, for example. No, no, probably not. But but I do think that word, it's like, you know, the line from The Princess Bride, why do you use that word? I don't think it means what do you think it means, you know. And I, I think a lot of times when people say it's cinematic, they mean it's exciting or there's a lot of, obviously a lot of money has been thrown mm-hmm. at it. And there are, there are a lot of pilots that I've seen in, you know, particularly in the last 10 years, I think Lost escalated things a lot in terms of how much money they were throwing at pilots. Yeah. And NBC has been especially guilty of this. I've seen a lot of NBC pilots where they've thrown a ton of money at the pilot, but it is not cinematic. Mm-hmm. It just means that they've paid for some nice locations. They've cut a deal with some nice auto manufacturer. The people are wearing proper clothes, but there's nothing happening at the level of composition, sound or music or editing that is remotely interesting in any way. It's all purely just mm-hmm. people talking to each other. And again, it's fine, but there's a, there's a way to shoot just people talking to each other and make that cinematic. And there are shows that do that really well, too. Sure. Like, I think, you know, 12 Angry Men, we're not talking about beautiful imagery here, but the the visuals are in service of the story. Is it not necessarily a descriptor of whether something is good or bad? I'm saying this because we're about to transition to True Detective, which is a show that has been described as cinematic. And by these gauges, would you call it cinematic? Yeah, I would, more so than a lot of TV shows, even though I think we're all in agreement that the second season was not on the level of the first one. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I I would call that show cinematic. It certainly aspired to be. And, And there were moments, in fact, in the last two or three episodes of season two, which hopefully we'll get to, that I thought it really was cooking. It was mm-hmm. cinematically really was cooking. Like there was some, it was creating a moment, it was creating a mood, and I felt like a lot of my objections to the show were disappearing, and it only happened for like three or five or seven minutes, and then I was back to having problems with the show again, mm-hmm. but there were moments. I absolutely think the show is cinematic. What we were talking about is that these are all things that work in concert to serve the story, and the issue with True Detective is that the story that everything is serving has serious problems. Yes. I'm not worried that the stuff in True Detective wasn't serving the story, I just don't think the story was worth serving. Yeah, that's really what it all comes down to. I mean, if if telling a story is what your goal is in a movie or television show, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes atmosphere is is really king. Like a show like Hannibal, I, I do think it is an intricately told story, but telling a, a straight linear narrative is not the highest objective of Hannibal. And I don't think it was the highest objective of Twin Peaks or Miami Vice or a lot of other shows that I would say were truly cinematic. So let's shift gears and talk a little bit about the finale of True Detective, which caused a lot of reactions, mostly negative, but there were a lot of supporters of it as well. It was a 90-minute long finale. By the end of it, Frank and Ray are both dead, and Annie is in Venezuela with Ray's baby. I wanted to start by talking about how the episode opens, which is with Ray and Annie talking to one another in bed, and just this kind of general emotional turn for their relationship. How did you think the show handled that? Because it played a lot into this last episode. I think it handled it pretty well. Um, it's really cheesy. Like, it's really <laughs> like a, not film noir, but rather like a graphic novel sort of compression of film noir. Mm-hmm. A lot of the mood of it and the and the ideas in, in this season particularly. But... There were a lot of things that I thought on their own terms worked really well in the last two or three episodes, and I felt like they started to figure out what this show was supposed to be, like started, emphasis on Mm -hmm. started, but it was too late. And that relationship between them, I feel like, should have started sooner. There were a lot of of plot elements that should have been introduced sooner, and I felt like they were backloading a lot of information into scenes uh, as they drew towards the finish line, and it really annoys me when TV shows do that. And there were some moments that were clearly foreshadowed, like um, 
Ray's death was foreshadowed in that scene where he got shot and he's dreaming. He has that dream about his dad and his dad accurately predicts the circumstances of his death. And that was episode Mm -hmm. two or three? I think so, yeah. yeah. Opening of three, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot more stuff in there didn't seem like it was prepared for. It felt sort of retro-engineered. I think the two of them as a pair makes sense. I'm not sure about the two of them as a couple. I think this season had extremely complicated attitudes about sex and largely negative attitudes. And so to have this sexual relationship be also like a healing relationship felt a little unearned to me because we had seen that these people have like a very odd relationship to sex and sexuality, especially Annie. So like I couldn't help thinking that they were capable of bringing out interesting good things in each other, but it didn't seem like they were destined as this like romantic duo. And I wish we had gotten more of them as just partners or mm-hmm. people who were able to see through each other's, you know, hardened exterior and, and understand certain things about each other. And we saw like glimmers of that throughout the season, but I feel like there was so much there that was not explored or investigated and, and that to me was like an interesting dynamic. And then to to sort of be like, Oh yeah, and then they fuck and they're cured. It's like I I think don't want that. You know, yeah. it just like yeah, it didn't yeah. like that part just felt so weird to me. It did feel weird, but there was almost sort of an, uh, a kind of a dream. There was a level of dream logic at which I almost bought it. Oh, I'm not. Know? I don't think they would never fuck. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they yeah. would. No, but I mean, <laughs> but, like, yeah. I guess I mean, sort of philosophically and morally, I I was willing to go where the show was taking me because we are talking about somebody who just you know. A woman who killed a security guard with a knife during an unauthorized undercover operation and a guy who, like, revenge killed a guy that he thought raped his wife who actually didn't. And we're supposed to go, like, well, I'm so glad they found each other, you know? <laughs> yeah, and look, I'm... <laughs> and, and, and I'm willing to do that for certain movies. I will say my favorite moment in the finale was when he's on the phone and he, like, gets the giggles a little bit. Yeah. And he, yeah. like, like, smiles for a second and then he, like, tries not to smile. And it was so... She's kind of has that yeah. same reaction. And that, to yeah. me, was, like, so delightful. And it just was, like, a very rare instance of depth and warmth on the show that has not been warm at all. No. Not that it needs to be, but I think the emphasis is on texture. Yes. <laughs> and it's going to seem, it all seemed very, very samey, samey, samey it on this nice. like tundra. And we yes. want to have, you know, moments of repose. The emotional tundra. Yeah. yeah. We, and, and so to get a little bit of something from this character that we've seen just go between like slack jawed astonishment, cocaine, and that's it. Right, (laughs) there's only two emotions to have this little bit of like, oh, maybe you know. And it's not that I thought it should have a happy ending. Like that was not what I was rooting for. No, but it's a lot more interesting when we have a moment of hopefulness that's then extinguished. Yes, right, rather than despair begetting despair. There's there's another moment of humor. It was like in my notes on this second season of the show. Like I have like really heavily emphasized moments that were funny because there were not very many of them. Yeah. And there was one of them in episode six where Frank and Ray are talking and Ray is on his way out and uh, Frank says, you might be one of the last friends I got. And and Ray pauses by the door and says, wouldn't that be fucked up? (laughs) And it's funny. It's like really funny. And the way he delivers it is very deadpan. And I think I thought Colin Farrell was wonderful and and kind of heroically wonderful given what the material that he had to work with. I loved him on this season. Yeah. <laughs> I like I didn't care for the season at all and I just I thought he was terrific. I yeah. started off not liking him and then he slowly won me over. I well, was into his, it. he feels things. He feels things really deeply and you can tell. You can tell. And like mm-hmm. there's many moments on the show where I wonder if like you can see him starting to tear up at how intensely his character is feeling things and holding it back because this is not the shortest show where the leading man is supposed to be crying every five minutes 
you know, but, but yeah. like you can feel him mm-hmm. like it's like it's welling up inside of him. And it's it gives that this season more humanity than I think I suspect was probably there on the page. I also think, you know, this is always so like woo woo to talk about this stuff. But in terms of like energy, I feel like his performance had like actual energy in it in comparison to, say, Vince Vaughn's performance. And I think Vince Vaughn is a fine actor. Like I, I'm not like, see, I told you he couldn't do it. It's not that. But I didn't find his performance to have any energy behind it. Not that it needs to be chaotic or even even have a ton of movement or quick, but there was just so much like deadness in that. You know, when you say, you say energy and I was thinking like, how would I translate that? And for me, it's an idea. Like I want the performance, I want there to be an idea behind this performance and I can somehow sense what the idea of the performance is. Like that's what makes a really notable, interesting performance for me. And that's what makes a performance interesting, even if the material that the performance is derived from is not that good. And I felt like Colin Farrell's performance had an idea behind it. Like, I don't know what the idea was. I don't know who came up with it, but it felt complete Mm -hmm. in a way that none of the other characters did. We have a clip here of Vince Vaughn and... um, Brace yourself, listeners. (laughs) We'll be here on the other side. This is Frank and Jordan. This oh, is a God, much, much talked about epi- scene from this episode. <laughs> yeah. They're basically well, saying the same thing to one another over and over again. Yeah, you're a bad actor. You could never <laughs> act, I believe, is one of the direct quotes. <laughs> that was a direct quote, yes. So That's, That violates the first rule, which is never include a line that critics can beat you up with. <laughs> it's not going to work. The you and me thing. The way I see it is you went up front with me. You can't have a kid, then what good is the design, see? He had me on the fairy tale for a while, and it was good. And now it's time to go. You can't act for shit. Take it from me. Where one goes, the other goes. That's what we said. That's not acting. But take your payout. Get the fuck on. Your ring? What is that? You think that I... You think I give a fuck about rings? That was a big diamond. Fuck you. I am not leaving you. I know what you're doing, Frank. Stop reading into things. Listen to what I'm saying. I am listening, and you're not convincing. So you listen to me. Whatever they do to you, they do to me. Do you understand? There's us. There's us. And everything else is in the gray. So I I felt like there was almost a classic movie style quality to this dialogue where they're saying things that sound slightly ridiculous and over the top, but like, I just had no emotional investment in the characters. What did you make of this scene? I could not with this (laughs) scene. So I think to Matt's point about like, does your character have an idea? I think for Colin Farrell's character, if I had to describe it, it would be like a dot, 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 am I question mark because he's like Uh sort of in this state of like confusion and horror like he hates himself but he feels like he has to do this stuff and he didn't want to but then he was proud of it a little and like this real turmoil and for Vince Vaughn it's just like dad frown face like there's just nothing (laughs) (laughs) like that's it like every single thing is like oh did you know that like his dad like like, he really doesn't like his dad it's like yes we knew. <laughs> like, a message received. Like, yeah, sad dad. It's, it's, and that like, was it. And this so, is a death of the patriarchy season, oh like, in a God. big, big freaking way. Yeah. So, I just everything about his character, and then on his, like, death march through the desert, it was just like, oh, oh, his dad's here? <laughs> yeah, it's like, suddenly it's like, tree, <laughs> Give me a fucking break. tree of life uh, with a mook. <laughs> but it was just like, no, no new information 
was conveyed in that, right? It's like, no. oh, his dad's a piece of shit. It's like, yeah, I know. It's like, no, he's like a real piece of shit. It's like, yeah, I know, because he told us a bunch of times. And then his wife was like, oh, I remember how your dad's like a piece of shit. Like, we we know. Yeah. I, and we just are like wasting all of this time and energy, like re-explaining things that were very clearly established and didn't need re-explanations at all. My beef with the entire season was it felt like a rough draft. The whole thing felt like a rough draft to me. And it also felt like I was watching True Detective season two and season three. Like the first four episodes and the last four episodes felt like two different seasons and not in a good way. Like, you know, it wasn't a situation where it's like, oh, the first half mirrors the second and and blah, blah, blah. No, I didn't feel like that. I felt like it was almost like they pushed the reset button. Did you feel that that way last season at all? I heard that a bit with. The story threads not connecting. You from know, the first maybe to the in second. retrospect, but I feel like it. I, you know, we talk. I talked about the idea of the idea of an idea for a performance, and I feel like True Detective season one had an idea behind it. Like it mm-hmm. was, it felt complete. It really felt complete, and not all of the pieces connected in the way that I guess they should to be called perfect. And there were a lot of dropped threads and things, but this sense of almost Lovecraftian horror in the swamp kind of tied everything together and also this sense of the past and the very much being still present to people in the present and, and people like wandering, wandering around feeling regret about roads not taken, mistakes they made, things they could have done to make things turn out better, to, to get justice, to solve the mystery and so forth. And and then it becomes this almost wish fulfillment narrative at the end where they get a second chance. They get a second chance to set everything right and they do in the end, you know, at great cost to themselves. It's like a weirdly corny ending for a show that seems so anti-corn in a lot of ways mm-hmm. but it just held together and like if you asked me what season two of true detective was about i couldn't tell you i couldn't tell you on a plot level really although i i've had a few arguments with people online to say well it's all there it's all there if you're paying attention it's like yeah but my issue is not if it's all there or not all there it's just disorganized the delivery is is not compelling i was reading chris ryan's recap of the finale and he was talking about how You have a lot of scenes this season where it's two people talking to each other and explaining what's going on, and you're just kind of focused on them in terms of the directing. And then there's a scene from last season of True Detective where Rust is talking, and as he's talking, it pans to all these people that he's talking about in a crowd, and you get a sense of of exactly the feeling and emotion behind his words, and it shows you instead of telling you. And in this season, it's just... They're just telling you and you don't how can you possibly feel invested in the story when you're not seeing it play out in front of you? Yeah. And also talking going back to this idea of cinematic values this season, despite those amazing helicopter shots, which I never got tired of looking at, Mm -hmm. there wasn't as much cinematic value in this season. And to me, the biggest indicator of that is the is the shootout. The shootout and them running, you know, through the warehouse and the bus and, you know, on fire and thousands of rounds of ammo. There's there was nothing notable about that like it was like every big budget hollywood action movie that is covered rather than directed where it's just they've got eight cameras on it it's like we'll cut it together we'll make it work don't worry compared to that tracking shot which while being very very affected like the whole idea of let's do a whole action scene in one take that's pretty pretentious to do that but if Mm -hmm. you do it right it's pretty awesome it's pretty awesome and you appreciate the effort even if it's maybe a little affected or more than was necessary. Like, I appreciate it. At least they're not doing the typical thing, which is what True Detective Season 2 did. 
as we were comparing the two seasons, and as somebody who had like mixed at best feelings about season one, although now I'm like, what a masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> um, something I think we forget is that season one is also told in flashback. We're flashing back to this investigation, mm-hmm. but we have the present day, which is still in the past, where we have our main characters explaining the case to police officers. And then we get slightly different versions from all of them. So the show is a, is about, in season one, a lot. There's a sort of passage or non-passage of time. And, and obviously we all have that like cheesy quote of like, time is a flat circle. But that actually does have a lot to do with how the season operated, right? Which is that like, yes. you can go home again, but they change the locks. Like that whole thing of, did you leave? Did you come back? And so we have all of these weird threads about time. And storytelling, and, and story, too. Right? So then it's also about, like, what is the story you tell yourself? And is it the same story that people tell about you? Because we see over and over in season one, characters discussing other characters who are not in the scene. So we see Marty and his wife talking about Rust. We see Rust and the wife. I <laughs> escapes me because that was one of the major shortcomings of season one. We see them talking about Marty. We see them talking about the kids. We see Marty and Rust talking about suspects. We see the suspects at the bar, whatever. Right? Like, we see a we lot of We even see the interrogating detectives talking, talking about about the people the that they're interviewing. Yeah. So, yeah. so we're all we hear people tell their own stories, and sometimes they seem true, and sometimes they don't. And then we see people tell the stories that they think are true about those other people, right? And so we have all of these ways that we're sort of getting at this idea of how long is a long time, and and what is the past, and who are who did you become? Did you become anyone? And these strategic omissions are quite interesting too. Like yeah. they create. That's when you know when we're talking about what can you do to contribute an additional layer of interest to the story. That's one thing that season one does is it creates suspense. Like in addition to the suspense of what is the mystery, who is behind these killings, and will they ever catch the person or persons? There's an additional level of tension and suspense and mystery in who's telling the truth here. What you know is what we're being told. Like, how accurate is it? How much is it being shaded to flatter the person who's telling the story? And what's being left out? And there are many moments where there are clearly omissions. Clearly, people are leaving things out of the story. And see, and I'm having much more fun talking about season one than I am season two. What does that tell you? <laughs> I think for season two, we didn't have any of those same driving questions, right? Because I think the season is a lot about. If I was going to be generous, I would say that the question of the season is: Am I still a man? If And we have all these different characters. You know, am I still a man if my wife gets raped and I didn't stop it? Am I still a man if I'm gay? Am I still a man if I can't get my wife pregnant? Am I still a man if I'm a woman but I have a ton of knives? Right? (laughs) And that's sort of like what we're getting at. And that's like the question that's plaguing everyone. But then we don't actually have any interesting avenues to explore it other than these really obvious ways of being like, yeah, I'm a man. Like, let's punch each other. (laughs) <laughs> like, like that's the sort of like least creative possible way to explore the crisis of like pop masculinity is just in the most obvious sense of having people Particularly like with Frank. Yeah. And yeah. it just it, we want to see that question. If this is your question, what might be the most unusual way to explore that or a way that we wouldn't expect to see or something that would really cause like genuine conflict and, and for you to like have a moment of reckoning and. And I just didn't feel like the show took it, us it took anywhere. the like, easiest, like with Paul as well. It feels like there could have been a lot. He, his was like a character I actually would have liked to see explored. He was very more. sympathetic, mm-hmm. and, and and Taylor Kitsch I like a lot. I me really too. like. He's really grown on me, and I think there's there's a great sensitivity in his in his face and the way that he says things. And 
I believe when his characters are suffering and holding it in and you can see it and nobody else can. Like, mm-hmm. I believe that. And that's hard to pull off without seeming wooden. I just didn't think there was that much to him. And then the whole thing where, like, he's maybe a war criminal. And yeah, it's like, what was that about? Yeah, so it's like, is he a war criminal? <laughs> and if so, like... And, and it had, like, like, the very worst... So and it's, it's quite a contest, but the very worst line of dialogue in the entire season is when his mom says to him, you're a good-looking white man and you want to get in shootouts and become somebody's husband. <laughs> <laughs> like there was a, some of the dialogue in this was like it really felt like it had been translated from another language into English and then I, translated back <laughs> and then translated into English again. Right. Maybe. Let's talk a little bit about the man behind this show, Nick Pizzolatto. HBO gave him free reign without any kind of oversight, no writer's room. He was the single writer on the show. And it's kind of this auteur style of TV making that has become more popular in recent years. Do you think this is problematic? Do you think TV differs from film in this regard? I think it helps, too. I mean, I went to visit the Mad Men exhibit at the Museum of the Moving Image in Queens, and they have a the writer's room. They have a reproduction of the writer's room. And one of the most fascinating things in there is this huge board where they have these note cards, and it's rows and columns, and the rows are names of major characters, and the columns are episodes. And each card has a single word on it. And I don't know what the hell some of these words mean. I don't know if they actually got translated into into specific beats for the characters in certain episodes. But mm-hmm. obviously it meant something to the writers. But it was, it, it seemed to distill it to the essence. It would say, like, disappointment, ambition, self-betrayal, you know, things like that. And it's like, Pete, self-betrayal, what was that in that episode? Like, I, you know, it really gets you thinking about mm-hmm. it. And but that's the you look at it and it looks like a math problem and and this kind of storytelling is a math problem and some people aren't good at math, some people are English majors. You know, so like that's why you need people. You that. need to, why you need people to help you. I think it's ironic that you in particular mentioned this kind of grid because Nick Pizzolatto mentions a grid exactly like that that he has in his office. Um, I don't believe him. <laughs> like he said it in uh, I think it was in the Hollywood Reporter, but it might have been in Vanity Fair. So forgive me if I'm misremembering where it was. But I did reread it this morning when I was putting together my story. And he talked about having all the characters with their different colored post-it notes and stuff. And this very traditional writer's room style, which is a common thing to have in in plenty of places where you have the board and you have the index cards and stuff. I don't think the issue is, can one person write eight episodes of television? It's ought this person to write eight episodes of television. Yeah. Right? There's plenty of terrible shows that are made in writer's rooms. Right? It's not like that's like some sort of inoculation against suck. There's plenty of ways that a show can still be bad, even if a team made it. And you had mm-hmm. people being like, geez, I don't know. Let's go back to the drawing board. Right. I don't think that one or the other of these things is necessarily a recipe for success or failure. I think this instance was not great. This is the cost of doing business. If you give someone total creative free reign, sometimes it turns out bad. Also, it may have been a matter of him not having enough time to do it right, to do it it right. And I'm not saying that to give, you know, to make excuses for the guy. But True Detective came out and he probably had a lot more time to marinate on that. And suddenly it's a big success and they want another season the next year. He had to crank that out. Mm -hmm. He had to crank that out. And it's like that classic conundrum of, you know, if you're a musician, you have your entire life to prepare for your first album and six months to make your second. But then why not get help? You know, yeah, that's I mean, that's what I'm that's what I'm saying is like, you know, you come up against the limits of human endurance. Mm -hmm. And even somebody like David Milch, who I adore, Milch had a very hands on approach to the writing and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting up to the last possible second of every episode of Deadwood. And it, he started to lose track of the threads in season three. And I love season three, but it's the weakest of the three seasons. You can see the wheels starting to fall off the mm-hmm. wagon there. I'm so curious about season three. Like, I couldn't be more curious <laughs> about what a third season of the show would be like, just because I thought this was such like a weird 
disaster, <laughs> but it's so in a voice. And I'd rather see a disaster than another CSI. Like, I'm much more curious about shows like this. And as much as I like The Hate Watch, which is a lot, I remain, like, weirdly convinced that Nick Pizzolatto could write another good season. I, I have tremendous could. affection for that show, even though even though it didn't work for season two. For that reason. <laughs> Maybe for just that bring reason. back Colin Farrell and we have, like, a fun... I don't know. Like, Colin Farrell well, we can, and... Let's do, it, let's do it Bachelor style, where you have, like, Bachelor in Paradise. So you have <laughs> yeah. the true detectives I was going to say, just put Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell together in Dublin. <laughs> yes. I'd watch it. So we're going to talk about Mr. Robot in just a moment, but first, a message from our sponsors. From creator Edward Burns, check out the new series Public Morals on TNT. In the 60s, New York was called Fun City. Gambling, prostitution, after-hours bars, someone had to manage the fun. Enter the cops of the Public Morals Division. They were the landlords, and if you wanted to be in business, you had to pay the rent. It's New York like you've never seen it, and a story that's never been told. Watch Public Morals series premiere Tuesday, August 25th at 10, 9 central, only on TNT. So we talked a a bit about how convoluted the plot was on True Detective. And this next show we're talking about, Mr. Robot, it also has that problem, if you want to call it a problem, where there's a lot going on. Just to give you some backstory, if you haven't watched the show, this show follows a cybersecurity expert named Elliot, who also moonlights as a hacker, hacking into people he's curious about kind of for sport. He's also addicted to morphine. He has maybe some mental issues going on. The show follows him as he joins this group called F Society, which is led by a man named Mr. Robot, played by Christian Slater. And they're working together to basically bring the corporate world down, including the company Elliot works for, E-Core, or as he calls it, Evil Core. (laughs) (laughs) So why do you think Mr. Robot works so well where True Detective fails you may not know what's going on all the time, but there's still you're still kind of you're still kind of interested. You still want to know what's going to happen. And so I think there's like that's a real apples and oranges, especially because Mr. Robot is not driven by one central idea of like we're solving mm-hmm. this crime or something. There's a lot of stuff going on, but I think part of the confusion is much more intentional in Mr. Robot. So one of the things that I think the show does in a really interesting way is that Elliot is our narrator. But he's not a particularly reliable narrator. And we see that over and over, right? So he calls E-Core, Evil Core in his head. But then we also hear other characters call it that. Mm-hmm. But we know that that's not what they call it. That's just how he is hearing it every single time. And we hear him describe other people. And we see, you know, it's like, oh, does she always knock on the door like that? It's like, no, no, no. That's like how, how he's irksome it is to him it. because he doesn't like to be bothered. Right. And so we have all these moments where the thing that's happening on screen, we're not meant to take as this is really how it went down. And so it's creating like this room between Elliot's experience and what the show is telling us. And I think some of that confusion and some of that like, wait, what? Some of that is because like Elliot would never explain it. Like these are gaps in Elliot's understanding or these are leaps that he's made that these things make complete sense to him, but actually don't hold up to any scrutiny. It's just like a mistake like in the, that we all make where you sort of put these two things together and they didn't go together, but you don't realize until you're telling someone oh, am I the only one who thinks this is true? You know, um, mm-hmm. and so I think like some of that is is built in to Mr. Robot in a way that if it was built into True Detective, that was not clear to me. No, definitely and not. You also have like a more of an emotional attachment to Elliot, I would say. Yeah, you know? for me, the main appeal of it is it's like a really well-written first-person novel. And this is not a criticism or praise of the show when I say that I honestly don't care 
what's happening at a plot level. I don't like, give a shit. I don't care. I don't care. I mean, I, I'm happy. No, like I, I care I'm, because like I'm watching it. But if it was like, oh, just kidding. Like instead of computers, we're doing something else. I'm right. Like, oh, I don't care. I'd be fine with it. And <laughs> like, it's because because the the world of of Elliot's head. We're inside Elliot's head, and he's such an interesting character. He's such an interesting character, and and. We talk about, you know, the, some of the comparison points are like Fight Club and American Psycho, the movie American Psycho, but they all kind of go back for me to A Clockwork Orange and, and Lolita, and then we're in the realm of Stanley Kubrick, who adapted both of those into novels. And there's a moment at the beginning of the second episode of Mr. Robot, I think, where suddenly they start to play uh, Handel's Saraband, which was used in Barry Lyndon and Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. And it's like we're basically the show is going like, yeah, that's right. It's, it's Kubrick. He's, mm-hmm. it, that's it. I mean, that's and it's it's a completely total immersive experience, and and it's very very artificial, but it's also very subjective. And I, I I'm fascinated by movies that take objective reality and distort it so that it reflects a subjective experience of who's telling the story, and you're kind of left unmoored, like you don't you you feel like you're on wet sand on the beach and it's shifting under your feet. I just love that, and no, very few shows do that. I think because it's really hard to stay in that headspace. You know? I think this is going to sound like such uh, flabby praise compared to Matt comparing the show to Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Um, but I think two really important TV forefathers of the show are House and Dexter, when Dexter was good. Um, like, <laughs> good and, quali- and House when good House qualifier, was good, too. Yeah. But House is a show that did used to play with time a lot, and, and we would sort of see the same story told a couple different ways, or you would have one character explain it, and then another character be like, that wasn't how it happened. And we got to sort of bounce back and forth a little bit, and so we had that sort of twist on, like, what's happening? We had our, like, central genius, who uh, and House is a drug addict, much like Elliot is a morphine addict, who has pretty serious like social relatability issues. I think Elliot has social anxiety that's pretty clearly established. House is just extremely misanthropic and pretty depressed. So all the weird ways that they perceive other people's actions maybe not being the way that those actions were meant mm-hmm. to be perceived. And then in terms of Dexter, we have that idea of, I'm so broken and fucked up. Do I fake being regular? Is that worth it? Is it worth extending that effort so I get to live in relative peace? Or do I have to sort of admit how my preference for life, which would be to be like, you know, in Dexter's case, a serial killer, and in Elliot's case, basically a hermit. And we have this, for Dexter and for Mr. Robot, we have this voiceover, we have this very flat affect. We have a lot of confusion about traditional social norms, right? There's a lot of sort of like pleasantries that Elliot doesn't like to do, isn't into, doesn't want to bother with, thinks are stupid. We see that on Dexter a lot too. I think if you like those shows, you'll probably Mm -hmm. like Mr. Robot, even if it doesn't sound like the kind of show you think you would like. I will also say to its enormous credit, it is not a tragic genius show. No. Unlike House and Dexter, Mm -hmm. where it's it's like, aren't these people so fucked up that you love them? (laughs) Like, I don't think Mr. Robot takes it quite that far. No, I feel like one of the things that elevates it above almost any other TV show show on right now is that it's actually about the world that we're in. It's very much about the world that we're in. It is very (laughs) timely and I'll be curious to see how it dates. That's how timely Mm -hmm. it is. And Mm -hmm. and it captures life in a big city during the twenty first century kind of virtual age, you know, where where the real world has kind of become this wholly owned subsidiary of the virtual world. And that's this is the first T V show that I've seen that truly understands that. Like, that's the place where the story begins. Like, it begins with the understanding that the virtual world is the world and the physical world is attached to that world and all the real action is happening in cyberspace. Like, that's 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 a given on this show. Mm-hmm. 
that in itself is fascinating, but it also captures the kind of feeling of emotional desolation of being in a major city when increasingly life is happening online. Like, it feels depopulated even when there's people on the street. I don't know if it's the way they leach the color out of it or the way that they crowd people into the corners of compositions to, and give you all this negative space. So it's like they're being, like, physically forced out of the story that they're in. Yeah. But they really get at that. And then there's also the little jokes about consumer culture and the idea of do we even have do we really have choice when we say we have a choice how much choice do we really have is it between coke and pepsi like these are things that are dismissed as being jejun as woody allen loved to say but <laughs> but it's a real thing mm-hmm. like and i think there's a tendency to dismiss that kind of conversation as being obvious or collegiate or not that oh not that again but it's something we're living in and we don't want to face it what makes the show so great to watch also is how every detail kind of congeals to get this feeling across. You feel like there's been so much there's been so much put into like every visual detail working to tell the story as we were saying it's cinematic. <laughs> yes, and it's not and when they do something like they dwell on the the importance of the idea of a bug, of people mm-hmm. having bugs and the way the programs have bugs. It's not just an affectation, they really mean it. They really mean it and they really explore it and they don't just explore it in a a kind of a dry, cool, conceptual way. They they explore it emotionally. It is actually also like beautifully written. Like I think the dialogue is terrific. Yeah. And I'm somebody who maybe more than other people like I I'd rather watch a show that looks like trash and sounds fantastic than vice versa. If there's not good dialogue and good story, like there's actually no show for me. Like that's just not my taste at all. And I think Mr. Robot has really fantastic, like sparkling, sharp, interesting dialogue. And we should note how much of a feat that is because a lot of it is narration done by Elliot. Which and it's Maggie narration. Would... And it's also narration that is interacting with dialogue as it happens. Mm-hmm. And so that means that all of this stuff has to be really, if not completely pre-written down to the syllable, they have to at least judge it accurately enough that they can leave space for Elliot's thoughts. And there'll be many moments where Elliot is talking to another character and then all of a sudden he'll have a, a thought that's like an, as, an aside. And he'll give it to you in the space, like the half second space between two lines of dialogue and it doesn't interrupt the flow of the and scene. It, it it's could, really hard to write that. And it could be so cheesy. I also think sometimes voiceover winds up being a substitute for acting, and that becomes very, very frustrating when it's like, I couldn't believe what she said. It's like, well, make a face, (laughs) right? (laughs) We have other tools at our disposal for this. And I think sometimes, especially in sort of like mysterious shows, which Mr. Robot is, we substitute voiceover for acting and for emotional truths being conveyed. And I don't think Mr. Robot falls into that trap. Part of that is that Elliot has such a flat affectation that um, he can be very difficult to read. And I think that's on purpose. But some of it is also like he can't keep like he's performing for that other person. So he's telling that person what he thinks they want to hear. And we like the acting choice and I think the directing choice in the show is don't let the audience see your lie. Right. Because sometimes like on other shows, when a character is lying, the actor is conveying to us that that character is also lying. Elliot is never conveying that he's lying. When he's lying, it's a fucking lie. Like, and he's really good at it. He's really good at it. A lot of times if there wasn't a voiceover narration, you wouldn't know that he's lying. You wouldn't know that he's lying. When he says like, yeah, I just made that up. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so getting I think I think that's a real feat. And this actor, his name is Rami Malik. Can we just acknowledge how amazing he is? Yeah, he's, he is great. He's, <laughs> he's absolutely great. Like, he's one of the most exciting actors yeah. to come along in a long time. And, and very, very subtle. Very, You know, I believe him as brilliant. And I believe him as damaged and socially maladjusted. And, and the filmmaking goes a long way towards selling that, too. Like, there were just so many great 
like nothing that they're doing visually is just for effect. Like there's always something, it's like you were saying, Margaret, like it's always tying back to what is the story, what are the characters? And like there's all these shallow focus shots where he's in, he is in focus and the world around him is out of focus as he's walking through the city. And that gives you that feeling. And like movies like Taxi Driver did a version of that where it's visually separating him from the world that he's in, which conveys the feelings of alienation that he's suffering from. And there's moments where people are talking to him and he will zone out and you know that he's zoned out because suddenly they rack focus so that he is in focus and the person who's talking is out of focus. And you hear them talking mm-hmm. and it's like he's half paying attention to them. Even if he's looking right at them, they're out of focus and, and they'll let that person be out of focus for 15, 30 seconds at a time and they just trust that you're not going to think it's a mistake. I think what's incredible is that it doesn't feel like a corn dick gimmick. No. Because all the stuff we're describing, I could also imagine in a different context us being like they put other people out of focus yes. you know what I mean? like it's yeah. feeling very like labored and sort of uh i don't know like schlocky and, and like, like a sort of shtick there are a lot of indie films that do that <laughs> a lot of a lot of indie films shoot that way and and it's often an attempt to make a rather unremarkable story seem more interesting than it is yeah i'm really impressed by sort of how controlled it is about these sort of moments of like stylistic flair i think it has like a real control of how much to use that, when to go light on that, when to go heavy on that. And what I like, too, is it's not like Elliot is infallible. Like, there's lots of stuff that Elliot's no good at. Mm -hmm. And we see that. And that's... It's not treated casually, right? I think it reminds me a little bit of uh, Deutschland 83, where we have our new spy, and he's, you know... Like, not that good at spying. Like, he's learning, he's trying, but, like, people make <laughs> right. mistakes. And I think with Elliot, you know, he'd been working mostly in isolation for so long, and now it's like, oh, you're going to be on this team. He's like, uh, I'm not really a team player. Yeah. Uh, and that being, like, genuinely an issue and not and not presented the way I think sometimes our anti-hero weaknesses on other shows are presented, mm-hmm. which is, like, doesn't that make you just love him more, though? Well, he doesn't make any sense in the way that people don't make any sense in real life, which is really nice because the story is taking place in this world that is so high stakes, you know, like businesses and entire electronic infrastructures are at stake in any given episode of this show. But it's ultimately a story of this guy who's just kind of muddling his way through life. And he's very inconsistent in his choices. And he makes stupid choices. And he makes choices that seem morally righteous and defensible and others that seem rather opportunistic. And all the other characters are are that way, too. And like uh, Christian Slater's character, I was kind of irritated at him at at first, I think, just because he's Christian Slater. (laughs) You nailed it. (laughs) but But I like the fact that I like the fact that like as the show goes on, we're getting more and more of a sense that he's performing that there's there's that he has constructed this persona like if you're going to be the leader of some kind of revolutionary army you've got mm-hmm. to make a persona and this is the one he's made people have also wondered whether mr robot is a tyler durden style manifestation of elliot's consciousness does that god i hope i not. hope not Please. too i really hope the show doesn't go <laughs> I'd there i'd like to think that too, i'd like <laughs> oh. to think they have better taste than that yeah i hope not Seven episodes have aired so far, so you have plenty of time to catch up because I think it's a 13-episode season. Uh, it's not a great binge show just because it gets a little bit – it's it's like very dreamy. It's, it's very immersive. Well, and, and also Elliot's not – like as much as I like him, he's not a person I want to spend too much yeah, time yeah. with. So I think if you're planning your Mr. Robot catch-up, I would limit yourself to three in a row. But we'll probably revisit it again sure. at the end of the season just because it's always a treat, right? When it's out of nowhere, there's like this great show. It's pleasurable. It is it is aesthetically a pleasurable show in pretty much every way. And how, how many TV shows can you say that about? And if you want to catch it live, it airs Wednesday nights at 10 p.m. on USA. 
That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. Our producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. And if you like the show, tell your friends and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellafant. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at MarginCharge. I'm Matt Zoller-Sites. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller-Sites. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.